The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Welcome to This is Working. I'm Dan Roth, Editor-in-Chief here at LinkedIn, and this is our first episode. Now, I lead a team of more than 60 editors around the world who spend every day trying to get professionals the news and views they need to talk about the things that matter. And that idea of getting people talking is what motivates us. I spent most of my career traveling around the world as an editor for Forbes, Fortune, Wired, and more. And all along the way, I was meeting with incredible business people and trying to get them to tell me their stories, what drives them, what trips them up. How do they manage and grow their companies and their careers? And what trends do they see coming around the corner? And then after I was done talking to these people, I would shrink that down to a quote or maybe a few paragraphs at best and move on to my next story. But there was so much lost in those long conversations. And that's our goal here. With This Is Working, we want to bring those full conversations to you so that you can find your own nuggets of inspiration your own things that help you manage your own career and your own companies and avoid those same stumbles. And with me, I have my producer. Hey, Laura. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? All right. This is a great show. We've got Judd Apatow. Now, this is from a conversation I had with him in 2017. Uh, Judd Apatow is a legendary Hollywood director, has produced some of my favorite comedies and maybe yours too. And he's currently working on a new movie with Pete Davidson. So I thought it'd be great to bring him back. Yeah, I've watched a lot of Judd's work. What'd you guys talk about? We talked about his career. We talked about how he manages his projects. And I think that one of the things that really jumped out at me, and I was hoping to get him to explain, was how he finds and manages talent. Judd has an incredible ability to spot and groom people you wouldn't think who would be Hollywood stars, who he turns into Hollywood stars. And then we also talked about how he takes criticism, how he thinks about feedback. And one of my favorite parts of it is when he explains that early in his career, someone said to him, you're going to get a lot of notes and feedback from the studio. And if you are, if those notes and that feedback is wrong and they don't pick up your pilot, they're not going to blame themselves. All the blame is going to be on you. So if all the blame is on you anyways, you might as well be super confident about your own choices and go with your gut. And I think that's a great lesson for all of us. So let's get into the interview. Here is Judd Apatow recorded in the Empire State Building in New York City. Judd, thank you very much for joining us. Good to be here. I think one of the most interesting things about your career is that this is, you've known since you were 10 Mm -hmm. that this is something you've wanted to do, that comedy is the area you want to be in. Mm -hmm. That's unusual. Most people don't have that clear of a path yes. at any point in their life, let mm-hmm. alone when, when yeah. they're 10. What, what made you realize that this was something you wanted to do, that you had to do? Well, lucky for me, it wasn't something that I had to come around to. It was just there from such an early age. So I don't know. I, I always wanted to be ahead. I think I was nervous as a kid, mm-hmm. like nervous to be able to support myself. You know, and I, and at I, ten, you were thinking about I think, that. Yeah, I think I just felt shaky. You know, I felt like you got to be on your game. You need to find your gift, whatever that is. I was really bad at sports. Always, always being picked last in gym class, which when you were a kid was a big deal because it happened twice a day. It would happen at lunchtime and it would happen in, in gym class. So you had this like massive humiliation multiple times a day, 
where you were you know, treated like lower than everyone. And I think in my head, I thought, I need a thing that I'm better than everybody at. And early on, I thought, well, something with entertainment and comedy, and mainly because no one was interested in it. There wasn't a second person watching comedians on The Tonight Show. Now there is because the internet and comedy's become such a giant business. But back then, in the late 70s and early 80s, just no one cared at all. And I like that. I like that I've had found a, a niche for myself. And then I was always just trying to figure out, all right, what can I do next to make this path happen? And for me, in addition to just watching everything and reading everything, I became a dishwasher at a comedy club just to watch the show. I just wanted to know how it worked. And then I said, how can I meet these people now? And then I started interviewing them for my high school radio station. And it was always about interacting with them and, uh, and learning more about it. And then I went to college and studied uh, screenwriting and did stand up. And, and then, you know, step by step, things happened. When you went to California, you went to USC, you mm -hmm. were there for a couple of years, mm -hmm. dropped out, and then went hardcore into comedy yes. at that point. Um, and you were doing stand up. What was your experience having something that you believed that you were going to do, that you th thought and had trained to be good mm -hmm. at, and then you were surrounded by people who, and you've yes. talked about this, who mm -hmm. were better than you at doing yeah. it? What was that experience like? Well, on one hand, I was excited to have found my tribe. I got there and I felt very alone in, in high school and even in college, but when I entered comedy clubs in the world of comedy, suddenly everyone was like me. It was like I had met the nerd Judd from every high school in America and we all congregated at these comedy clubs. So that was exciting, just to have friends who could talk about Monty Python sketches. And very early on I met Paul Feig, who had moved uh, to California from the Midwest, and a lot of people like Steve Higgins, who is uh, the the uh, announcer on The Tonight Show, but he's also the producer of Saturday Night Live, and I met all these people when they were just had moved to town, and I just thought, everybody told me it was gonna take a long time, so I, I didn't have that sense of, uh, I'm behind. I always felt ahead because I started when I was 17, so even when I was 20, 21, I thought, you know, if this all starts working out when I'm, 30, it's, it's okay. And uh, it was daunting how good certain people were because I, I lived with Adam Sandler and I was uh, friends with people like David Spade and Rob Schneider and, and, uh, and I would open for Jim Carrey and write some jokes for Jim Carrey and I felt like, yeah, these are, you know, these are supernovas. This is, and you knew, uh, you know, oh, th these are gonna be the biggest stars in, in, in comedy. And with Jim, certainly, you're like, oh, this is going to be the biggest comedian who ever lived. It was, even before it happened, you just, you could feel it. You could feel it, and you didn't feel any pressure yourself to be in that same supernova status? Well, I would have liked to have been that person, but I was a comedy fan, and I certainly had a pretty good sense of where I stood and where other people stood, and I saw that I was uh, maybe more built for writing and, and directing and, and, and helping people. So for the first half of my career, a lot of it was understanding someone's voice and persona and writing jokes for them or specials or movies. And then I think in the second half of my career, my work got more personal and I found a way to have it be more from my point of view. And one of the things that you were known for as you made this transition was you really were pushing back hard against the studios. Mm -hmm. That when people gave you notes, you were famously yes. refused to accept yes. notes. Was there what, what was going on that you didn't want this kind of oversight or that you thought that you needed to push back so hard? Well, a hard thing with, with comedy is um, 
no one knows if anything's gonna work. So any conversation about should we do it this way or that way is very abstract because you, know, you could write a script and one person's like, that's gonna be the biggest movie ever and another person could read it and go, that is terrible, no one in the world will ever wanna see that and there's no way to know if either of them are correct because everything about whether movies are good or bad or you know, why people go to movies is uh, an intangible. There's just no way to predict it. So early in my career, I just, you know, I just had an instinct that if, if I think it's right, I should try to just do it the way I think it works. And I remember when I was doing the Ben Stiller show, which was a sketch show for Fox, I went to uh, my manager's partner who was running in Living Color and I asked him for advice. And he said, Judd, if you do their notes and they're wrong and then they don't pick up your pilot, they won't apologize. So just make sure you go down with your ship. You, 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 know, you need to do it the way you want to do it and succeed or fail. Now, that leads to can I collaborate with executives and take notes and find a way to have that process be healthy. But at the time I didn't know how to do that, so I would get a lot of notes and I would say, well, I'm not doing any of them, what happens now? Do you think this is true for anyone in the creative industry? You work in advertising, you do anything where it's, there's no data behind it, it's subjective, yeah. I think this is good. Learning how to manage your bosses, how to manage this kind of feedback, especially from non-creatives, is that something you've had to figure out how to do? Yes, and I, I continue to figure it out because I don't know if I'm right. Mm. But all I have is my opinion. So I might fight to the death on something and then just be proven completely wrong. And what I realized was that it's, it's not, the issue isn't so much about taking notes or not taking notes, although that is a big part of it. It's who do you decide to partner with? Who do you decide to work for? Do you respect those people? Do you think they have great input? I've been working with Universal Studios you know, for um, you know, about 13 years now, and part of it is because they're really smart and really funny and creative, and they, they get what I do, so I don't have these problems with them. It's not like we never disagree, but I just feel like we're speaking the same language. So that makes it much easier. I've worked for people where I just go, this, this person doesn't get it at all. I, I mean, it's nonsense and you want to kill yourself the entire time. But slowly I figured out who those people are and I just avoid them. I've seen uh, Paul Feig has said that you are, has called you a feedback machine. Has talked about the fact that when you finish a movie, mm -hmm. you take a three hour cut, you give it to everyone who's in your focus group almost, a bunch mm -hmm. of people and you say, give me every yes. note you've got. So clearly you do want some feedback. You, yes, you I do want the notes. I just want to be in control of whether or not I have to do the notes. And what happens is that early in your career, when you haven't made anybody money, no one trusts your judgment. So if I do Freaks and Geeks and it gets canceled in the middle of the first season, and then I do Undeclared and it gets canceled in the middle of the first season, when I do a series of TV pilots after that, no one thinks I'm gonna be correct. And so when we start having disagreements, I lose because I've never made anyone money. And then as soon as some of the movies made money, people backed off a little bit and thought, oh, maybe he has a sense of this thing that he does and that collaboration got easier. But when I make a movie, I mean the process is to have the first rough long cut, bring all your friends in and, and people who aren't your friends and just say, what do you make of this? 
and then fix it and then do it again with with friends and advisors. But you're the one who gets to make the decision. But I get to make the decision and then I bring it to real people and then I take you know, 300 people in a mall and and then listen, what are they understanding? What you know, is it communicating the way I want it to? And do that 3 to 5 times. And usually by the end of that process we've gotten to the best version of the movie. So it isn't so much about me alone in a room or me in a room with executives, it, the audience is collaborating with us and telling us if, if this is working properly. You work on so, you work on so many mm -hmm. projects that have incredibly different timelines. You do stand-up comedy where you get instant reaction, you create doc, you're creating documentaries yes. now, you've got uh, episodic shows and you've got yes. movies. Is there one, do you do that on purpose to have different projects that take a certain amount of time or is this, how do you decide what it is that you're gonna work on. It's hard because you never know when anything will happen. So I could write a movie, I don't know when I'm gonna be happy with the script, and then when I'm happy with the script, I don't know if the actors or actresses I want to be in it are gonna be available in the timeline I'd like to do it. So in a way, you have to have a dozen things floating because sometimes you know exactly what you wanna do, but then no one else is ready to go. And it seems to have worked out that you know we make a couple of things a year. Sometimes it's a TV show or a movie or something we produce, but it is very random. I was just about to start making a movie, and at the last second, uh, you know, one of the actresses pulled out, and suddenly I'm free for the next year and a half, and I have to figure out, okay, so now what's my next move since that fell apart, and that you know that happens. One of the reasons why I work with young people who need a break is because they're available. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not getting another job. So it's not like when I say, let's go, they say, no, I've got three years of work lined up. And that actually has made my life much easier. Would you have a preference? So would you rather be doing things that take that, have, that are on short time frames so that you are in more control of your schedule? Or do you not, or, or movies, what you think this is all about? I, I, don't, I don't really know right now. I'm trying to process how media is working at this time. You know, it used to be you do a TV show and you really felt it affect the culture in a big way. But now there's, you know, there's, there's these ballots for the Emmys I got like to fill in, you know, best, you know, best drama and there's like 260 shows. And so you're not affecting the world like MASH. Mm -hmm. it's, it, there's not gonna be 110 million people watching your finale. And then, in, you know, in the movie theater, they're not selling as many DVDs, and uh, it, it's, it's much more difficult to really break through. So do you lean making movies? Do you make movies but for streaming services the way some people are doing? Do you just say, TV's hot, I'll stay in TV yeah. now? But then sometimes you feel like, I don't know, there's so much TV, does anyone even remember any of it? So I haven't decided how I feel about it, so I'm just doing a bit of everything and seeing what happens. Hi, I'm DC Marshall. Hi, I'm Mita Malik. We are the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, where we discuss how to help women of color thrive in their workplaces. And we invite allies to join us to help women of color win at work. We have a seat waiting for you. Subscribe to Brown Table Talk wherever you enjoy podcasts. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers 
and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You're well known for finding and nurturing talent, especially kind of unexpected talent, maybe faces or people that wouldn't have made it in the Hollywood star system. Do you have a secret or is there something that you have found over the years works well for you for spotting someone and saying, this is someone I want to make a star, someone I want to have a starring role in one of my shows or movies? I don't really think, uh, I mean, there isn't a formula. It's just more like when I was a kid, I would watch TV and I would see somebody like Michael Keaton when he was young and on a sitcom and think, oh, I love that guy. I wish he had a movie. And as a kid, I would just wait and then one day, you know, Mr. Mom would come out and I'd be like, oh my God, they gave that guy a movie. And now as a producer, I see someone and I go, oh, I wish I had a movie. Oh, maybe I'll call them and see if we can think of a movie. And, and but there's no formula to there's it. There's nothing in that gut level reaction that you've, over the years, been able mm -hmm. to say, ah, these are the, this, this is what I've discovered is what I'm looking for. This is why my gut is telling me this is the right person. Well, I'm sure if I sat down, I could probably psychologically profile, right now, let's do it. you know, the type of characters. I mean, I like, I like people who are like, you know, a mess with a good heart who are trying to figure out how to make it through this life and find love and success and, and that that journey is going to be difficult. You know, I like wounded people that are good down deep. So generally that's what I go to. I'm not into like the perfect action hero, gorgeous, strong, kick-ass types of characters. I, I, I like the, I'm a Norm from Cheers guy. You know, I, I used to say, I'd like the Born Identity more if it starred Norm from Cheers. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Do you think about starting someone on their career? Do you, when you find someone, are you thinking about, I'm going to launch them, or is it, I want them for this particular project? I don't really think about it as launching anybody. Uh, you, like when we did, uh, you know, Bridesmaids, it wasn't, uh, oh, we can help launch... Kristen Wiig, it was, I think Kristen Wiig's a genius. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't she have a movie? Like she's, has anyone never been funnier than this person? And so it's exciting to try to crack the code of what is a Kristen Wiig movie? What does she want to express? How can we support her vision? How can we help make this happen? And then the launch part, if everything works, it, it, it becomes a launch pad for them. But for me, it's only the idea. Like it's this movie, this story, and solving all the problems of it. How do you think about people who haven't been able to either, you thought they were going to be stars, they didn't turn into stars, or you thought they were going to launch mm -hmm. into something and they ended up not having the phenomenal career. You know, we know all about yes. the successes. Yes. When you think about the people who didn't actually make it, what, what do they have in common? I think that, uh, especially if you're an actor, an actress, if you're not writing, I think that it's a very hard profession because you're just hoping people recognize your talents, and that means that you are subject to luck. Just 
Did you walk in the door the day that director was in a good mood and understood who you were, and you see that some people never have that line up for them, and tons of people leave the business. It just doesn't happen, and other people, it you know, they just have a you know a moment uh, of I don't know magic where they walk in the room and. I know it wasn't Sharon Stone like in some tiny little moment in Stardust Memories with Woody Allen and then he featured her a teeny bit more and then that's it. Or I think Cameron Diaz had a very similar type of story where somebody just noticed something. Mm-hmm. But on another day she could have just been getting a coffee and that person just <laughs> didn't, didn't see her and it doesn't happen. So that's a big part of it. And so a lot of the people around me who have succeeded in a big way is because I, I encourage them to write. So John Daly, the lead of Freaks and Geeks, who was 14 uh, when we did that, when he played Sam Ware, he wrote the new Spider-Man. He had directed Vacation. He has this incredible career, both as an actor and as a writer, and as a director. Jason Siegel wrote the Muppets movie. He, you know, Seth uh, Rogen you know, did uh, This Is the End and the interview, and, and on and on and on. The people who said, I'm gonna sit alone in a room and create these projects. Do you think that's generally true, that this idea that you have to have either, you have to be writing or you have to you have to try to create your own success rather than being around people who are successful and they're going to make you successful? Do you think this is generally true or is this a particular Hollywood I star think, thing? I think it's true, but you just have to be the type of person that wants to yeah. do that. There's some people that just don't want to do that. They don't see themselves as writers or directors or whatever business you're in, they may not see themselves as the leader of the business. They like their their piece of it, whatever part of it they're doing. But I always encourage people to try to do that to see if they're capable of it. A lot of times people don't do it out of low self-esteem or fear. I, some people say to me, how do you direct? I say, I don't know, just say you're a director. You are now a director. You said it, you're a director. I mean, you're what, what, what's a producer? Just say, I'm a producer, I'm producing this. Just, I'm attached to this. I have this idea, it's me. Yeah, I'm the producer. And then people go, okay. Uh, but a lot of people get afraid you know, to do that. I was afraid, I was afraid to direct. I didn't direct, I didn't push to direct. And one day, Gary Shandling walked in my office at the Larry Sanders show, and he said, you're directing the next episode. And I didn't ask him, I was terrified. I would never say, yeah, let me direct Rip Torn and, and Jeffrey Tambor and you. I feel up for that. But he, you know, saw something uh, in me and asked me to do it. But I definitely was not on the path to having that happen anytime soon. Do you do that with people who are in your world? Just throw something at them and say, "You're now this person." I do. I, you know, Nick Stoller, who uh, directed uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, he was a writer on a TV show we did, Undeclared, and he came to me one day and he said. Uh, I like to throw my hat in the ring to direct uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the movie Jason Siegel's writing. And I just was like, all right. You know, and, and he just had the, you know, the, the thought to say, I want to do it. And now he's you know, a great uh, screenwriter and director. And for your career, you've done this. You've always been writing. You try new things. You, mm-hmm. You're willing to, even though you, you might have some fear, you, you tackle new projects all the time. You've also talked about the role that mentors have played mm-hmm. in your life. Um, can you talk about some people who might have had an impact on helping you get to that next level? Well, I uh, always talk about Gary Shandling because when I was in my early 20s, I got a job writing jokes for the Grammys for Gary, and I didn't know Gary. 
I just had met him briefly, and so I tried to write just an enormous amount of jokes. I just thought I need to make myself indispensable. Mm -hmm. And that's advice I always give to people. You just want to be the person they can't get rid of because you're overproducing. And as a result of that, he took me to New York when he hosted. I wasn't just someone sending in jokes. He said, why don't you be there? And I was on stage feeding him jokes during the show. And you know, Jack Nicholson was on the show and Bono and Bob Dylan and Sinatra. It was the greatest thing that ever happened in, in, in my life. And uh, it started uh, decades of Gary giving me new opportunities. He asked me to write for The Larry Sanders Show, then direct The Larry Sanders Show. He gave me notes on all of my movies and was a very gracious person, not just to me, but tons of people in the comedy world. And I think on some level that made me think, oh, that's how we're supposed to do this. You mentor me, and then I mentor other people, and that's how we all give back. Got it. What do you tell people when they meet with you and they say, look, I want to I want to be you. Yes. you know, I, I, am, I need to be the next Chad Apatow. Generally, I tell people, don't be a dick. I mean, that's the simplest thing, which is if people don't want you in the room, it's all over already. And you learn that in punch-up rooms at sitcoms because there's 10 people around a table, line by line, going through scripts. And there's always one person you're like, I wish I could remove that person from the room. I, I cannot be in this room because that person's in the room. And that person usually does disappear. And, and so that is the first lesson. Don't be that guy. Don't be what we call a room killer. And then one last question. Something I've always been, I found fascinating from all mm -hmm. the interviews you've done is mm -hmm. you were so open about um, your self, about dealing with self-esteem issues, mm -hmm. yeah. about not knowing whether you're as good as someone else mm -hmm. or whether what you've made is any good or not, or will, will you put something out and you're not sure it's, if it means that the next time you do something it's gonna be any good. Mm -hmm. How do you survive in an industry that is that has so many trends where new people come in all the time where there are fewer yeah. and fewer barriers to entry and have those questions about like, am I, am I good at what I do? Uh, I think it, on one level it might be healthy because I, I just feel like I'm on a first date always. You know, I just, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like any success I've had means the next one will be successful. And it keeps me on my toes and I have a lot of energy to succeed because I, I, I just don't get cocky or lazy because again, in comedy, I just don't know. But that's what's interesting and that's what you know, keeps me fascinated and working is I, you, know, you can't just relax because you could, I always say, you know, you're always three movies away from being kicked out of the business. You know, you'd have, you'd have one bomb, they'll let you make another with a slightly lower budget, and if that bombs, they're gonna give you a really low budget, and if that bombs, you're done. And so you're, you're, you're aware of that in, in some way, and it keeps you uh, focused. How long after a movie comes out, it does really well, how long does the honeymoon period last mm -hmm. for you? If it does, like how well, how long do I feel exactly. good for? Yeah. I don't, I don't even have the moment. <laughs> I usually have the moment of joy when we show the movie for the first time and realize it's good. But by the time we're releasing it for real, I'm usually thinking about another movie and I'm nervous if that one's gonna come out well. I'm not very outcome oriented. I, I like to be working and solving problems, but if something is done and I like it, I'm not obsessive about this needs to be giant. I want it to do really well. But my 
my nerves are more about making bad things than they are about making successful things. So I, I want the success. My kids will tell you the day Walk Hard didn't make money, they, I was so depressed it haunted them for years. <laughs> you know, so, so it's not like I don't have that. But, but you know, what is most concerning is in the middle of the shoot of the Big Sig, watching dailies, going like, I hope this makes sense. Like that's the, the scary moment. And then when you know, oh, it does make sense, that's the happy moment. And then the money thing, it comes or it doesn't. Sometimes you think it doesn't matter because there are things you've made that didn't do well in the box office and then you notice, wow, people are still talk about funny people all the time. And even though it did you know, fine, but not giant, you realize, oh, it's penetrated in some way. Like people are going back to it, people are watching it. it it's, uh, it's important to people. And so the success isn't necessarily in the money in the box office, it really is in, does this project survive? Do people care about it? John, thank you very much, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks, appreciate it. All right, that was Judd Apatow. Laura, what did you think of the interview? I was surprised by how much he works and how much of that time he thinks he's in a precarious situation. He's he's always moving. Yeah, I was kind of blown away by how driven he is to f- keep working on something else. He's got multiple projects going on at once. This is someone who does stand-up comedy in clubs when he doesn't need to. He has reached a level of success that most of us, maybe all of us, <laughs> will never achieve, and yet he cannot stop working. And that's something I want to hear from our listeners about, too. Whether you work in Hollywood or not, how do you know whether you've made it? Do you think you'll ever know whether you've made it or not? And can you ever relax? I'm not sure it's possible. But if you figured it out, let us know how you figured it out. And if you haven't figured it out, let us know how you're balancing your life. It'd be great uh, to hear any kind of feedback you have on the podcast. Write to us using the hashtag, this is working. And for more interviews, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I write regularly about this subject and others, and I'll always let you know when a new podcast is out. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and write us a review on Apple Podcasts, please. It helps new listeners find the show. I'm Dan Roth. Thanks for listening. The show is produced by me, Laura Sim, with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Iriondo is head of Original Video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Special thanks to Judd Apatow. See you next week.